Welcome to Help Me to Understand, a podcast where women give their voices to issues of social justice, political activism, giving back, and other topics relevant today. I'm your host, Felicia Garland. As you look around, you can't avoid the fact that we live in an age of political and social divisions, global warming, economic and racial inequality, and a breakdown in many of our social structures. And that was just this morning's news. I find it can be all so confusing, and I bet you do as well. Perhaps you'd like to make a difference in the world, even if only a small one, but you feel you need more knowledge and understanding around the issues we face in order to develop the tolerance, empathy, and compassion you need to become a force for good. It's my mission with this podcast to hear from women who are working every day to make a difference. So welcome, curious listener, to this journey of discovery and understanding. I'm so glad you're here. Together, let's become a force for good. With me today is Lisa Barsky-Ferkser. Ms. Barsky-Ferkser is the Executive Director of Court-Appointed Special Advocates for Children, also known as CASA, of Morris and Sussex counties in northern New Jersey. The CASA program works with children who've entered the child welfare system. Lisa joined the CASA staff in March 2009 after a 25-year career in healthcare as a leader in pediatric outpatient care for children with special needs. She has spearheaded several new programs and helped to establish nonprofit organizations and pediatric clinics. Lisa earned a doctorate degree from New York University in rehabilitation and has a master's degree in audiology and undergraduate degrees in special education. She's published numerous articles and presented workshops and seminars around the United States and in Canada. Lisa's work is truly a labor of love. She's motivated by the CASA motto that every child deserves a safe, loving, permanent home. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning. So let's start with court-appointed special advocate. What does that mean? What is a CASA? They use the term for short. I think in other states they may use another term, but the court-appointed special advocate, what do they do exactly on behalf of the child and why, what is it about the process that they're needed in this process? Well, first of all, these are all volunteers. So these are all people from the community that come to us and to programs across the country. There are approximately 950 CASA programs across the country. It is a national organization. They come with no necessary particular background. So they are trained by the program. So people come from all walks of life. They have to be 21 years of age, and they cannot have any criminal background. They are screened quite extensively with interviews, with background checks, fingerprinting, sex offender checks, driver record uh, checks, driving record checks. So they really are screened before they even start training. And then they go through approximately a 36-hour training. It varies by program. Ours is about 36 hours. And they do court observations. And they also do ongoing training throughout the year. So the most important important thing for people to know is these are volunteers and they're giving their time 
unpaid. It's a labor of love for them as it is for staff, even though the staff is paid, although I will say low wages. <laughs> so they come to us from the community and we recruit people from all over. Uh, we serve Morris and Sussex counties to northern New Jersey counties. So we recruit people from our counties. They don't necessarily have to live in our counties. Some people work in our counties. Some people just have some kind of a connection with our county. And we train them to be advocates and mentors for these children. And all of these children have been removed from their own homes, from their parents, because of abuse, neglect, or abandonment. So these are parents who cannot take care of these children. And they're removed at any age. Sometimes they're new babies who are taken right at the hospital of birth because they're born addicted or the parent gives birth and leaves the hospital and abandons them for various reasons. Sometimes it's a domestic violence situation. Parents could be mentally ill. Parents could be deceased and not have any biological relatives or close friends to take care of the children. Many different reasons children are abused and neglected. Uh, so these children are removed and they're placed into the system, the child protective system, the child welfare system. And that's the foster care system, the resource family or foster family. So many children are placed with foster families. Some are placed in group homes, older children, older adolescents, and teens. It's very difficult to place in families. You know, people who have raised teens, teens are difficult in general who come from really good families. So imagine teens who come with a whole lot of baggage. Mm -hmm. So they're difficult to place. So many end up in group homes or residential facilities. Some children come with severe medical problems or other severe behavioral or mental health problems and need a special facility and can't be placed with the family. We train these volunteers and assign one volunteer to either one child or one sibling group. That child or sibling group's advocate are assigned right from the time they enter the system. And they stay with that child or sibling group until they reach what we call permanency and that's either reunification with their birth parents. And that's what we want to see. We really want to see families reunited. And we work towards that. Parents make mistakes. They need help. Maybe they have a substance abuse problem and need time for rehabilitation. Or maybe they need to have domestic violence and, you know, need time to get themselves together. So... We want to see reunification. Unfortunately, in our program, it only happened this past in about 42% of our cases, successful reunification. The other children either go on to be adopted or um, dependent living or age out of the system. And that's the tough thing because when they reach between 18 and 21, and each state has a different threshold in the United States where they age out. In New Jersey, they're allowed to stay on for services until 21. Some states, it's 18. But when they age out of the foster care system, they're on their own. They don't have a safety net. They don't have a place to live. They don't have funding. Well, let's. I do want to talk about that situation a little bit at the uh, further into this, but we have special program for those. We okay. start at 14. Okay. Um, 
working with them. Okay. Well, we'll again, we'll, I want to, I do want to focus on that community because that's a, I'm, as you intimated, very a very special demographic. Tough, yeah, demographic. I know that there are each of the thousands of cases you've supervised or handled, they all have to be unique. But are there just a few similarities you can mention that you see in all cases? I know in some cases, there's no parent available to place the child back with the parent on a permanent basis. The parent is just, for whatever reason, not going to, that's never going to happen. But in other cases, you do work very much with the parents to provide a safe home. But what are their similarities it, that you see throughout all the cases, if there are any similarities? Well, some similarities, especially with the younger children, they don't understand why they're being removed. They're very frightened. They're very scared. Mm-hmm. They've lived in a dis- dysfunctional family, dysfunctional household, but that's all they know. Mm-hmm. So even though they might have been abused and neglected, there might have been no food in the house. An eight-year-old may be parentified. An eight-year-old may be taking care of the younger children in the home. You know, she may be the parent to those other children, but that's all she knows. That's her normal. Mm-hmm. So when you ask these children, they want to go home. They I'm want sure to they go do. back, mm-hmm. you know, because that's their normal. So it's it's so amazing to me when, you know, you you see these families and these children have really suffered so but when you ask them, they want to go home and mm-hmm. they might be in this fabulous foster home, but they want to go back home to mom or whatever. And they're so worried about mom because now that they're not there to check on mom, did she uh-huh. overdose? Did right. she have her meds? Did she, what happened? Or the little brother, if the kids are separated, if siblings are separated, you know, some of these children are, are very family minded. Uh But then some go into really phenomenal foster homes who do go on to be adopted. Adoption is a tough thing. The ones who are babies and go into pre-adoptive homes and that's all they know are these parents and then they're adopted by these parents. Uh You know, that's a whole different story. I don't know if you know, but our daughter's adopted. We adopted her from the time she was a baby. So we're all she knows. Um, Uh That's a very good story. Right. But these children that go into homes and are adopted, even though they're in a what we think is a much better situation, mm-hmm. there's right. a lot From of guilt there. Sure. Yeah. yeah, but there's a lot of guilt sometimes. They're leaving behind a whole other life, mm-hmm. and they have to say goodbye to that other life. And the majority of the children we serve are in therapy, and many times therapy for many, many years. And to have that goodbye visit, if their biological parents have their rights terminated in court, mm-hmm. that's absolutely a tearjerker session in court. Sometimes the biological parent will surrender their rights because they know they mm-hmm. cannot take care of this child, or they have a criminal case against them, and they know they're going to be in jail or or whatever, so they surrender the rights, but many times they don't, and they're fighting for that child, and the court terminates the rights. There's a trial, Mm -hmm. there's a hearing, there's witnesses, and the judge makes the decision. There's no jury in family court. The judge makes the decision, and the parent's rights may be terminated, and the child gets to have a goodbye visit with that parent. And it's heart-wrenching, absolutely heart-wrenching. I remember when our birth mother turned over our baby to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'll never forget that day. It was heart-wrenching. 
um, she knew that she could not parent our child. Uh -huh. And she wanted a different life for her child. I give her more credit than ever. But it's, it's very difficult, very difficult. But some, you know, we once had in court a dad who was really fighting for his daughter, fighting uh -huh. for her. Mom was deceased, and he was trying to raise this daughter. He was in and out of drug rehab, kept relapsing, and we always say relapse is part of recovery because uh -huh. many times it is. He just couldn't get it together. And the judge said to him, if you love your daughter, you'll let her go. Oh, God. You'll let her go on to this other family. And then uh -huh. maybe you can still have some kind of a relationship with her. It uh -huh. doesn't mean you're completely out of her life, but you can't raise her. That happens sometimes. Sometimes we can still keep some kind of a relationship with with the biological parent and uh -huh. we try to do that okay uh, that's interesting I, every time you talk about this i always because i've known you for a number of years now just so people know every time you start to speak about these situations i get a little teary because i as <laughs> a parent I. you know as a parent the idea of first of understanding that you cannot you're not able to raise your child and then to give that give your child over even though you know it's a better situation but anyway i i digress i didn't want to get into the the mushy <laughs> the mushy part of it actually you raised two things did you want to say finish something no i was just going to say i'm going on my 12th year as executive director and every day there's a story that i'm teary-eyed or every day there's a child that i want to bring home mm -hmm. and you know uh, there they're just certain ones that touch your heart yeah i imagine uh Steve, your husband is probably pretty happy that you don't bring home every child. <laughs> Would you like to help? Because you'd probably have a couple of thousand kids. One thing briefly, because I didn't know this, well, even though parental rights are terminated, the parent could still be in a situation where they could see the child? Well, it's or first of all, the child? child is 18, it's completely up to them. Okay. Second of all, once... A ch child is adopted, it's up to the adoptive parent. Mm. So if the adoptive parent wants to make a, have visits with that bio parent, the biological parent, if they want to keep them in their life on some level, mm -hmm. you know, send them pictures at a birthday, have a visit once a year, whatever, it's up to the adoptive parent. If they want to cut them out completely, which is, happens most of the time. Just to, so that's the child isn't confused too much. Correct. Now, yeah. it depends on the age also of the child. If the mm -hmm. child's older and has had so many years with the biological parent, and it depends on the biological parent. If they're incarcerated, if they really have a criminal case against them for so physically abusing this child, you know, it depends what the situation is. Mm -hmm. Also, we have something in New Jersey, and I don't know across the country, but in New Jersey, we have kinship league guardianship, where the parent, the biological parent's rights are not terminated, but they give over legal guardianship to either a relative or someone else, mm -hmm. and that other that person becomes the legal guardianship of the child so they can still stay in the child's life on some level mm -hmm. they can still have some visit and that's worked out in court what level that will be will it be okay. visits once a month will it be mm -hmm. visits once a year will it be 
phone calls. So we do have that level. Okay. So the need must is tremendous. I know. Uh, I, and I, you can talk a little bit about this whenever you want to, but as with COVID and the economic situation, all of these different things, if there's been an uptick in the number of cases that you've seen, but I don't want to lose track of what is it that the cost of volunteer actually does okay. in this whole process of right. hopefully reuniting the child with the family or terminating those parental rights? Well, the volunteer has a very professional role. We try to keep the emotional boundaries um, and we really teach that in training. We don't want the volunteer to get too emotionally attached, and that's very difficult because we want them to get close to the child and family, but we do want it to be a professional role. So they don't take the child to their own home. They don't introduce the child to their own family. They don't talk about the case. It's very confidential information because these are open court cases. Mm -hmm. So the child's name, where they are, where they're placed with the foster family, that's all confidential information. So they are the advocate. They get to know everyone who's involved with the case, teachers, the foster parents, any medical professionals, any therapists. They talk to everybody. They want to know everybody that's going on with the child. They must have eyes on the child, visit the child at least once a month so that they physically see the child. And many of our advocates visit the child more than once a month. Mm -hmm. But they must see the child at least once a month. And I'll tell you a little bit what we've done during COVID to, to alleviate that. But they go to the foster home, make sure where the child is in the foster home is safe, what's happening with the foster parents. They go to the school. If there are educational issues, if the child has um, educational plans, IEPs, they meet with the teachers, they meet with the child's study teams. If the child is in therapy, they talk to the therapy. They get a signed court order by the judge that says they are appointed by the court, they're sworn in by the judge, that they are appointed by the court and assigned to this child. And specifically on the court order, it says that HIPAA does not apply to this volunteer. So they are entitled to all records on this child. And that's what's so important. They can get medical records, they can get educational records, and they take that court order with them wherever they go. That's their entree to everything. Mm -hmm. And then they write reports to court, um, to the judge, because we come back to court at least every 30 days on these cases so that everybody knows what's happening with these children and the volunteers who are assigned to a staff member. So they're not out there on their own. Uh, we call them case supervisors, the staff. They are assigned to a case supervisor, and they write a report, which the case supervisor reviews with them and co-signs, and it goes to the judge and all the stakeholders from the child welfare system who's involved with this child gets the report with exactly what's happening with this child. During those three months since we've come to court, what has the child done in school, medically, in the resource home, and what does the child need? We make recommendations. The child needs hearing aids. The child needs a special placement. This resource home is not good for the child because. The child needs to see their parents more. 
They should have supervised visits with their parent. They're really missing their parent. This child should be placed with their siblings. They shouldn't be separated from their siblings. Whatever the recommendations are, this child should have a psychological evaluation because he's really having severe behavioral issues. Whatever we're seeing, we make recommendations to the court. And the court because we have such strong relationships with the judge and the judge feels that we are the eyes and the ears of the court and really know these children better than anybody else working the case, the court will usually order what we're asking for because mm -hmm. we've backed it up with facts because throughout those three months, we've met with all these people and, and learned about the child. And then the court will order we've asked. So there's no one else in the process then who does this, the, the, the state people, the caseworkers, the social workers, they're all, they've got 50 cases and they can't do this kind of focus or it's just, has it been set up this way that the advocate is just the right person to do this? Unfortunately, the the caseworkers who are the state workers have many, many cases and cannot give this attention. So mm -hmm. we work with them. We mm -hmm. are in touch with them, whoever is assigned to the case. We are volunteers and staff talk to them back and forth. We have great relationships with them and we go back and forth with them. Mm -hmm. So we they depend on us. They know we're in the schools when they can't be. They know we're at the medical appointments when they can't be. So we do work back and forth with them. Okay. Well, it's fabulous work that they do, and it must be difficult for them to not get, and you said you try to make sure they don't get that close to the child. They have to be removed enough to be, to view the entire situation, but it must be so hard for them to not get so close to the child, especially if the case goes on for years. Right. It, they need to be objective and mm -hmm. non-judgmental, and they're there for the best interest of the child. When the case closes, mm -hmm. they can then be a family friend. You know, many oh, they can. Okay. We allow that. Now, every state's a little different. Our program allows that because they've established a relationship with that child, with that family, especially mm -hmm. our teens. Oh, our, our advocates for our teens, that's a lifelong person. They invite them to their weddings, to their college graduations, to, you know, they're, they're their lifelong friends. But even with the younger children, if, if they're adopted, they're at that adoption day mm -hmm. and they are become a family friend and, you know, they're invited to birthday parties and things and um, they've helped them along. Yeah, but then they're no longer the court appointed advocates. So then they no longer get records. Once the mm -hmm. court closes the case, we're no longer court appointed. We close the case. They are off the case. They can go on to take another case, and that's what we hope will happen. But mm -hmm. then if they choose to be the family friend. Now, some people want to put that adoption behind them, want to put their life in foster care behind them, and mm -hmm. just want to move on, and that's fine. So it has to be mutual. Yes. Okay. We're in the middle of, still in the middle of the pandemic, COVID. And I, of course, there's been so much talk in the last couple of years about the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. Because of COVID, the economic situation, people losing their jobs, it's already probably tough for a lot of the parents that are in the CASA process to begin with. 
what do you have you seen either an uptick in the number of cases or a difference in the kinds of cases you get because of these outside events or is it just pretty much the same and it's all it's a, a tough situation all the time well what happened at the beginning of covid the first few months we were not seeing any new cases there were no removals across the state not just from our program and the executive directors in all of the 14 new jersey programs we have calls every week we would have zoom calls with each other now we've brought them down to once a month but the first several months we had calls every week so we all were seeing the same pattern no removals we were all very worried there were no eyes on these children these children were not in school so many calls to our hotline we have a hotline in Jersey for abuse and neglect so many calls to the hotline come from schools come from school nurses, come from teachers, come from guidance counselors. When a child is in trouble, who do they talk to? They talk to their teacher, they talk to their guidance counselor, or the Mm -hmm. school nurse will see a bruise on their body, or they, in school, they don't want to deal with anything. They say they're sick, they go to the school nurse. That's who calls in to Child Protective Services. Mm, This was not happening. So we were not seeing removals. As the pandemic has been opening a little bit, all of a sudden we're getting new cases. And for us, for Mara Sussex, I can't speak about the rest of the state. The majority of our cases have been parental overdoses, and most of them have been parental deaths from overdoses. The state of New Jersey, there was an article in the newspaper the other day, our governor, Governor Murphy, said that there has been an 18 to 20% increase in opioid overdoses during this pandemic. They're home. People are home. People are so stressed out to begin with that if they had a substance abuse problem, it's it's magnified. Uh And um, substance abuse is huge. So many of our cases were substance abuse before this, but now they're overdoses. And now they're overdoses that are are deaths because everybody's not around with Narcan and and with something to help them um, because they're in their homes. So we've had a lot of that. We've had a lot of children that the parent, they now are dealing with no parents. And they might have been, most of the cases that we've gotten and are getting, these children have been known to the system. Mm -hmm. They either were in and out of foster care or the the division, um, the Child Protective Services knew about them but hadn't removed them and have have known about this family for years. But now the parent died. So now they're in the system. So they've lived a dysfunctional in a life for many years, and mm-hmm. now they're orphans and no one to care for them. So it's so traumatic. And we assign a volunteer immediately mm-hmm. and are really working with these, with these kids, and most of them are older. Mm-hmm. Try to get them placed in families and um, keep them together when they're siblings because they're all they have is each other right now. Oh, certainly. So there has yeah. been has been an uptake in in opioid and in Uh mental illness. We're seeing mental illness just come out more because Uh people are just so stressed. They're losing jobs. They're dealing with homeschooling. They're dealing with family members. It's tough. We, um, I can tell you a little bit about what we did during COVID. You want me to go there? Well, let me just ask you then, are you anticipating your other executive directors that when children are 
back in school, whenever that happens, however we define back in school, that there's going to be a huge, then another spike in the number of cases because kids are going to, if parents are stressed out, you know, they hit something or somebody and it's the four-year-old child or there's kind of this iceberg almost. You see the top uh, part of it, but down below, there's got to be a lot of stress in households. Right. That's what we're thinking. And we didn't do any training of volunteers over the summer. We trained our last class. It ended at the end of February, right Mm -hmm. before the pandemic hit. So we did not do another training class during the pandemic. I was anticipating that we may need a new group of, of volunteers. So we are in the middle now of a new training class and we're doing it over Zoom. Um, So we're doing three-hour trainings once a week. Um, We're doing it all over Zoom. And because I did not want to wait until we could do it in person, and we have uh, 2019, one had to drop out. So we have 19 uh, potential new volunteers in this training class. We're in our third of six weeks. Um, The third uh, night was last night. And because I think we're going to need this new group of volunteers, even though we still have, you know, a solid group who will take more cases. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to wait until we could do it in person. Right. Have a, have a crisis almost. Right. So let's talk about we a little bit, because I kind of put this off till near the end here. Tell us a little bit more about the child who ages out of the program. Okay. The 18-year-olds or what is, because I, I think what you guys do in your CASA is a little different than what typically happens in most cases, because I think you've been able to expand where other programs have not been able to. So can you address both of those? Yes. When they age out at either somewhere between 18 and 21, depending on the state, they're completely on their own. That's it. Services are over. Um, Nowhere to live. Find a job. Find a place to live. You're on your own now. Even a 21-year-old, you know, those of us have who have raised kids, but can you imagine an 18-year-old? They're just Mm -hmm. graduating high school. They're still in high school. But even 21, I mean, without a family and without having had that strong family structure and strong background, Mm-hmm. Where are they? So we started a program, I think it's seven years now, at least seven years, that we call Fostering Futures. And we actually are helping lots of the New Jersey programs start it. And it's now a national program. It's National CASA started it. We took it and ran with it and really expanded it. And National CASA has taken some of our stuff and, and uses it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are some programs across the country that use it. We start our program, we start with 14 year olds. I don't want to wait until they're 18. So we start with age 14. So like when they're freshmen in high school, because these are youth who are not in families who are not being adopted. And we want to start preparing them for independent living. How can they live independently? So we do a special training in addition to the regular CASA volunteer training for volunteers who want to work with that population. And it's a very special demographic, a special population, so it's not for everybody. And they can do a lot more with them. We want to teach them, how do you apply for a job? 
What do you wear yep. when you, we take them into a department store and how do you pick out an outfit to wear on an interview? Do you wear cut off jeans or do you wear khaki pants? You know, what do you wear for an interview? And we do mock interviews with them. How mm -hmm. do you fill out an application? We take them around a mall and to stores and get, you know, job applications. How do you get a checking account? How do you get medical insurance if you're going to apply for Medicaid and whatever? Do you have your social security number? Do you have everything you need? Do you know your medical history? How do you get all of this? And we work with them. We took a group of teens to um, ShopRite and we mm -hmm. gave them each a $50 ShopRite gift card mm -hmm. and a cart and said, okay, you're working at Dunkin' Donuts. You make this much and at the end of after they take all the taxes out, whatever, at the end of the week, you have $50 to spend on food for this week. How are you going to make that $50 last through the week? Wow. And, you know, do they put potato chips and soda in their shopping cart? Or what do they do? And we taught them how to read labels for nutrition value and mm -hmm. how to make things out of leftovers. And we did cooking things with them. And how do you do that. How do you eat for the week? How do you eat healthy? And mm -hmm. what can you do? We take them on trains and buses. And how do you get transportation to get places? And then really important is we start with them at 14 because we want to get them through high school. Yes. And so many foster youth drop out and don't make it through high school. And we want to know post high school, what's next? So we've been really successful in getting our kids into college. We have five this year uh, freshmen in college with full four-year scholarships, oh, room and board and tuition. And we work really hard at that because we started with them at 14. Mm -hmm. College isn't for everybody, nope. but those that can, we want to. And so pre-SAT cores, getting them courses, getting them tutoring, you know, throughout high school. What do they need? Having that mentor really work with them, working with their guidance counselors in school. We want to be there for them so that we can get them through and get them everything they need. We buy laptop computers, you know, whatever they need. We've been buying Chromebooks like crazy for all the online learning. Uh -huh. But those that college is not right, well, then what do you like to do? What are you good at? Cosmetology, culinary school. Mm -hmm. What? We had one girl who, oh, love her. She's from China. She was pretty much on the streets raising herself in China. Her mom was here. Dad was in China. Dad sent her here to live with mom, and mom really physically abused her. And in court, mom rescinded her rights, gave up her rights to her, and she was in foster care for many years. She wanted to be a nurse. Well, mm. there was no way that this girl could have made it in nursing school. English was her second language. She was really struggling. We were able to get her at Berkeley College into a trade program, a two-year program, where she could learn to sterilize medical equipment. Mm -hmm. And then she could do an internship in a local hospital. She was living in a group home, a teen, teen group home. So she could be in a medical facility or in a surgical center or something and work with medical professionals. But nursing, she was just not going to be able to do all those chemistry and biology right. courses. So we try to find out what they like, what they're mm -hmm. good at, and then 
find them a program post high school what they can do. So we, we need to, you know, what, how are you going to live independently and be able to have a lifestyle for yourself? What you're talking about probably takes a lot of money to do that, to have this kind of program. Well, the laptop computers, and I know some programs in different states, they're state-funded or funded through taxes. You guys are not in New Jersey, as I understand it. You have to raise all your money for the training, the program, the computers, the everything. How do you find the time? You personally find the time to, I know you've got great case supervisors, but how, how can you possibly do all of this and raise the money? Last night, I got off the computer at 1.30 a.m., but um, you have your days. Mm-hmm. But we do have a great team. I have a great staff. I have a f- fantastic board. Um, it takes a team. It takes a village. But we've established over the years fundraisers and donors. Now, with COVID, it was difficult. We had to cancel our June major fundraiser. Mm-hmm. But you really, it's a cultivation of donors every day. So we do fundraisers. We write grants to foundations. I'm constantly writing grants. And I also have a staff member who writes grants, who's our our grant director. She writes grants as well with me. We do all kinds of things. We do get some government funding, but that seems to be going down each year. So we have Mm -hmm. to be very careful of not depending on that. And we, you know, we have private donors. I'm always out in the community speaking at women's clubs and men's clubs and churches and synagogues and rotary clubs and Kiwanis clubs and trying to bring donors in and people in. And we want to connect people. You know, we want people to love our mission and be engaged with our mission. It's a difficult mission. There's a certain stigma to foster care. It's not a mission for everybody. It's um, something people have to connect with. Everybody loves children, but the whole thing about parents in jail and parents with substance abuse problems and parents giving up and abandoning their children, you know, everybody doesn't connect to that. So you have to sell it sometimes. And there Mm -hmm. are people that find it's not for them. But even once you do get a donor, then you have to keep cultivating that donor and and keep them with you. And you just don't walk away and go back to them, you know, a year later for another donor. Yes, it's been, you get this once a year in the mail, that's it. You just Right. No ongoing communication. Well, before we wrap this up, is there one thing in particular you could think of that you'd like to accomplish yet with, I know years ago it was actually starting this program for the adolescents, but, and you successfully did that. Is there another group or project that you'd like to accomplish that you're working on in addition to what you've done now with the younger children as well as the older children? Our, our bio parents, our young moms, are so fragile. Mm-hmm. They have not had strong role models. Some of them are very young. They don't know how to parent. Mm-hmm. They make mistakes. Many of, them come, many of them were in foster care, or many of them come from very broken homes. They don't have um, the role model of a strong mom, a strong dad, and then all of a sudden they're pregnant and, or, or they're in a domestic violence situation or they are a substance abuser. 
I really try to work with these moms um, and sometimes dads because, mm-hmm. you know, dads really get a bad rap. There are dads who really want to raise their, their children. And I really would love to have more support for these parents. They need more. They need more services. We need mm-hmm. to give more money and to give them sometimes more time. They maybe can be more rehabilitation and maybe more with their children. They need so much. They're so fragile, so many of them. And sometimes they surrender their rights because they just don't know what else to do. And um, it breaks my heart because so many of them are young children as they are when you look at them, you know, in in their own right. Mm -hmm. So I, I would love to be able to do more for them. That's very interesting because I could, I could see how it would be easy to, in a sense, almost demonize the parents to not under, fully understand their entire situation. Right. Just to look at it where they are now, they're drug abusers, but what was their whole history and how do you support them? So that's right. an interesting. Well, just more fundraising, I guess. Yeah. And one thing that I constantly tell our staff and volunteers mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that these parents don't love their children. No, that's true. Yeah. You know, they might have, they've made mistakes. Some are terrible people. Uh, Uh You know, some have done terrible things, but the majority of them, it's not that they don't love their children. They don't know how to parent their children. So I'll leave that as the final. Well, let's hope that next time we speak, we could, there be some progress on that. If there's one thing, that you'd like listeners to come away with, to understand about CASA in a brief way, but what would you like them to understand most about what it is you do or what CASAs do? That we really look for the best interest of children. And um, our government always doesn't do that. So many times when funding is cut, it's cut for the programs that serve the most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think everybody, I don't want to get political, but everybody, when they vote and when they look at programs, you know, programs for the most vulnerable. If people want to learn more about CASA generally or CASA of Morris and Sussex County, New Jersey, where you are particularly, where do you, can they look? What is there? Is there a website? Do you guys have a website? Um, our website is CASA M S c.org that's that's casa of morris and sussex county m for morris s for sussex c for county.org you can just um for cause for national casa you can just it's casa for children.org is the national organization and that can direct you uh, to a CASA in, in your local programs. Um, it's court-appointed special advocates. And uh, there are about 950 CASA programs. So I encourage people. It's, it's a very different kind of volunteer experience. It's not easy, but it's very, very rewarding. Well, just full disclosure, I recently became a they're not called CASAs in North Carolina, but I've begun work and training as a volunteer, so I'm very excited about that. So I'll, I'll report back to everybody uh, on that. 
just listeners, so you know, I am going to put links to both the uh, CASA of Morrison Sussex County website as well as the National CASA on my website, helpmetounderstand.com. Thanks, Lisa, so much for joining me. It's I appreciate your time and all the information and just so in awe of the great work that you and the CASAs do. Well, I appreciate it, and I really thank you for giving CASA an audience. So thank you. That's it for this episode of Help Me to Understand. If you like what you've heard, please go to our website, helpme2understand.com to listen to more great episodes. Or, better yet, subscribe to receive new episodes as they are released. I'm so glad you can join me. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.